This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Pam Pennick is the gardener behind the well-known longtime garden blog, Digging. Based in Austin, Texas, Pam is an avid and audacious gardener and garden writer. She's also a determined garden community builder in all that she does, from digging to writing to organizing gatherings such as the Garden Bloggers Fling, a convening of garden communicators in a different city or gardening region of the U.S. every year. In 2017, Pam dug in deeper and began organizing and hosting a garden design speaker series called Garden Spark to facilitate bringing some of the best voices in gardening to her garden region for the benefit and expansion of gardeners and gardening right there. Pam, I'm so pleased to be speaking with you. Welcome to Cultivating Place. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm really happy to be here talking with you today. So if I asked you, lifelong gardener, very active garden community builder, to distill down for me the importance of plants in your life right now, your relationship with plants right now, like how would you define their importance in your life, Pam? Plants, I think, are keeping us all sane right now. It's during COVID when we were stuck inside. We still had our gardens, thank goodness, that we could go out and enjoy. I've never really thought of myself as a plant person in the way that a lot of people will describe themselves as plant people, you know, like people who love to collect certain kinds of plants or who just go crazy at the nursery. I've never been that sort of gardener. For me, it's always about the experience of being in a garden filled with plants and seeing the beautiful design of it or more than that really the the mood of it the feeling that it evokes it's more about design for me but it is definitely about plants in that it just gives you a feeling of peace and joy and happiness to be surrounded by plants and when they're arranged in a garden that someone has created it helps you know that person a little better Mm. So it's important not only, I think, to have your own garden, which could be anything from pots on a patio to a full-blown garden, but to visit other gardens and to get to know people who garden and visit their gardens because it's a way of getting to know other people too. I like that. And before we get into all of the aspects of what you do in our gardening world right now, Take us back a little bit and tell us a little bit more about where you were born and raised and, you know, the people and places and plants that grew you into this kind of designer and gardener. I was one of those kids who got to run wild from a very young age. You know, I don't know that kids get to do that much anymore. Um, Probably my own kids didn't get to as much as I would have liked. But um, I grew up in a small town in upstate South Carolina little town called Greenwood. We lived in a brand new subdivision, which was mostly woods with little streams running through it. And I got to run around all day long and explore those spaces with the other kids in the neighborhood. And looking back now, I think that was hugely formative in terms of appreciating nature and um, wanting to be outside. You know, this is obviously way pre-internet, 
and all of its attractions. So um, I don't know. That's never left me. I still love to explore outside. And that was, I think, a big reason why was because I ran around that way. My mother also gardened. She was not a big gardener when I was a young person, but she grew into much more of a gardener um, over the years, probably as she had more time as we were growing up. So I enjoyed visiting her garden as I was a, a young adult. Um, she was living in Tulsa at that time, and she grew hollyhocks. And I liked visiting her garden. Her mom had also gardened um, in Oklahoma. So those definitely had an influence on me. Um, but then I really didn't become a gardener myself until uh, we had our first house, which was in Raleigh, uh, North Carolina. My husband and I were living there at the time, fresh out of school. And... Um, I wouldn't say we had a garden at that time. We inherited a garden and it was this old, you know, World War II era bungalow with all this flocks down the front steps and lots of dogwoods and old neglected roses in the backyard. We didn't have the first idea of yeah. what to do with any of it, <laughs> but um, we were curious about it. And I planted one plant there, a camellia, I think it was before we left. We left after two years. So there really wasn't time to learn to be a gardener there. And I remember the feeling of still of planting that shrub and how we were so nervous about it. We were working <laughs> on it together, you know, digging the hole and are we doing it right? Young parents, Will right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We didn't know what we were doing, but we were excited about it. And then we left. And so I have no idea what happened to that little camellia, but that was the first hole that I dug. And then we moved to Austin and that was in 1994. Um, so we've been here almost 30 years. And um, we bought our first house and started our family. And during that time, I started to garden a little bit, you know, putting a few plants in the ground. And and then I thought, well, this is kind of fun. And so I wanted to learn more about how to do it well. And so I started reading all the books I could get. And, you know, there was just so much to learn. So it was nonstop. And I started visiting the Wildflower Center, the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center here in Austin to teach me about gardening here in Texas. And also about native plants, because the native plant movement was was already big yeah. then at that time. And that's what that garden is all about, native plants. Um, so I learned a lot there and then just learned a lot from from doing it and kept on gardening all through my children's young years. Yeah. And um, yeah, I guess that was the formative years of learning to garden. I really like the the story of that first garden you got to sort of try on the idea of having a garden without having to actually have created that garden or do much with that garden in in oh that was in Raleigh yeah in Raleigh yeah and that slow experimentation and getting familiar with that feeling I think is is not uncommon in you know and I would guess a lot of people had this experience in uh, the lockdown years of 2020 and 2021 of kind of walking outside and being like, oh, what, you know, what can I do? What, what, what should I do? And that it often comes to us in that first time we, we have a home of our own, whether we're renting it or we mm -hmm. actually own it. But then you in Austin, which is one of the great, in my opinion, great gardening meccas in our United States today, uh, really led, I think, by the the values and the research and the model 
put out into the world by the Lady Bird Johnson Wildflower Center. And, um, you know, I think it's now the the Botanic Garden of Texas. And Mm -hmm. it has really led a charge across our country for this climate-appropriate, native plant-dominant garden model in our world that I think is to all of our benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, There is hope in this kind of gardening um, and garden design with that idea in mind, um, leading us forward. So you get to Austin, you do quite a bit of your own uh, research and learning. You you take advantage of the resources that are there for you. You then really take on gardening as and gardening communication as a, a career. Uh, did you start the blog first or did you write magazine articles in one of the books first? Give us the kind of trajectory of that arc in your life, Pam. I was an English major and wasn't sure what I was going to do with that. But when I was living in Raleigh, um, I got my master's and in, in, in English. And at the same time, I was working for a magazine called The Sun in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, when we moved to Austin, uh, which was because my husband got a job out here, um, I worked for a while at a business press here. So I was still doing editorial work. Um, so still had my hand, not really so much in writing, but I was managing the editorial department. And then we decided to start a family. And so I quit that job and uh, was raising two kids. I've got a son and a daughter. And during that time, I was gardening and not really doing any writing. But the blog scene was coming up, at least. I'm not sure how when the blog scene started. But for gardening, it was certainly coming up around, I would say, 2004 or so. So my kids were little, I was doing a lot of gardening, but I didn't feel like I had a community of gardeners. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any friends who gardened, didn't have any neighbors who gardened, didn't really know anybody who gardened. So I started reading garden blogs and I searched for garden blogs that were here in Austin. And I found a couple that really, well, they were the first two, maybe they were the only ones here at that time. And I read them obsessively. It was, and I got to know those gardeners um, later on. And about two years into reading garden blogs, I was like, I have to have a garden blog. I want to be part of that conversation. And that's what blogging was back then. It was, you know, you're sharing your own, your own material, but really it's about the conversation. It's about talking very actively with these other bloggers and just contributing to the things they talk about growing this plant and boom, you're talking about growing that plant. It was very, a very connected community. So um, I started a blog in uh, 2006 and I was just obsessed with it. So I started writing again and I was photographing because blogging as a gardener, you're photographing all the time. And so I started doing a lot of that and um, I just loved it. It was just a great way to, to meet people. And of course I wasn't the only one having these feelings. There were lots of people who were joining this conversation by starting a blog. And I got to know the, um, the other bloggers in Austin started organizing meetups of bloggers here in Austin. And at that time, it was all like everybody was kind of hiding behind their blogs. Nobody felt, I guess, safe enough to to venture off that, you know, at first. But then we did. We realized we weren't going to be meeting crazy, <laughs> weird people on the internet. It was just people like us. <laughs> Who are crazy and weird, but in their yeah. own way, right? I know. In a We're safe way. crazy and weird, but in yeah, a nice way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that's how I got started. And um at the same time that I was growing my blog, I was also growing my my gardening skills and my design skills. 
and started to help, you know, some friends and neighbors, that sort of thing. And then I think it was around 2007 or so, 2006, maybe it was right around the time I started my blog. I kind of launched my uh, a garden design business. And it was a very baby garden design business at first. And I just kind of hung out my shingle on the blog and said, you know, I'll help you design your garden. And I got business and it just grew. I did that for about seven years afterwards. And that directly came about because of my blog, because that was a way for me to let people know what I was doing, to show them what I could do and that sort of thing. And it was also a time where I was growing my writing, my writing skills in gardening, um, because I was continually feeding the blog with, you know, my experiences and and that sort of thing. And so the blog led to both the design career and the writing career. And so I started to get offers to write for magazines here and there, and then eventually was offered a book deal uh, to write Lawn Gone. They were looking for someone who knew about um, lawn alternatives, someone perhaps from, you know, a drier part of the country. And that was right up my alley at that time, because I'd been helping people for however many years it was as a designer to, um, I mean, almost everybody who hired me wanted to get rid of their lawn. It was, we were having to go into a terrible drought. Everybody's lawns were brown and sad. And Austin has long been a town interested in native plants. And so almost everybody who hired me was like, how can I convert my lawn into a native plant garden? Well, and as you pointed out, when I was there visiting you earlier this spring to uh, be the final speaker Mm -hmm. for your 2021-2022 Garden Spark series, Austin, I don't know if it's the whole state of Texas, but Austin has uh, had water restrictions in place as just their normal routine since Mm -hmm. that drought that you were um, just referencing. That's right. And that was 2011. Yeah. So it's been over 10 years. And that is remarkable foresight and intelligent design and planning on their part. I mean, you know, I was born and raised in Colorado. We went on and off restrictions all the time based on drought. We, I now have been in California for almost 15 years, a little more, and we go on and off restrictions. And the fact is we live in a summer dry climate. We live in an arid climate in this state. We should always be on restrictions and they shouldn't even be called restrictions. They should just be called good sense and um, mm-hmm. water-wise uh, limits. And yeah. the impressive thing there in Austin for me was seeing just how few small homes or big homes or developments had irrigated turf grass. And uh, that's a remarkable anomaly in our Western world, let alone our just world at this point. Um, But, you know, what I think all research is showing us is that from the perspective of resource use and water and from the perspective of biodiversity loss and habitat fragmentation or reintegration, not having turf grass and incorporating a large number of natives, but also climate adapted plants in well-designed spaces is a great contributor to both of these issues. So, you know, I was just super impressed with Austin in general and uh, and everything you showed me while I was there. I would love for you to talk about either of the books, Lawn Gone or The Water Saving Garden. What's interesting to me is that they've been in publication for some time, but yeah. they are issues that remain forefront of relevance in our horticultural world. Mm -hmm. Whether you're on the East Coast where you get 
relatively reasonable amounts of rain, um, or in Texas where you get more rain than we do here and you have humidity, but still resource management and water use are things that all gardeners need to keep in mind. Yeah, I think that is on the forefront of of people's minds across the country these days. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously out West and um, 10 Speed Press is uh, the publisher of both my books and they were the ones who approached me about um, about publishing a, a lawn alternative book. Um, lawn gone came out in 2013 Mm -hmm. that issue has just even ballooned since then I mean it is it is just on the forefront of everyone's minds uh, because lawns are such thirsty and extensive I mean I forget what the statistics are but when you compare the amount of turf grass we have to crops I mean I think it's maybe more than crops I don't know but it's it's huge this is Cultivating Place. Pam Pennick is the gardener behind the well-known longtime garden blog, Digging. Based in Austin, Texas, Pam is an avid and audacious gardener and garden writer with a big heart for smart, colorful gardening and her home ground of Texas. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Pam when she'll share a wonderful story of meeting Lady Bird Johnson in Lady Bird's own garden at the Wildflower Center. Hey, it's Jennifer. One of the threads that runs through this conversation with Pam is thinking about and wondering about the childhoods our world is offering to our children. Through access to the outdoors and to nature, whether moderated in a public park or home garden, or in the ability to run free in the real out of doors, up the street or up a mountain. It reminds me of the importance of access to fresh air and clean dirt. Our gardens, public and private, are just such access points to knowing this intimacy and understanding with the world. If we let them be, it reminds me of the importance of unstructured, undirected time, of loose parts and play, and that most creative of mindsets, which results from all of us, young and old gardeners alike, remembering to find and cultivate space for all of this. Don't forget about free time and playtime in your garden life. We're back now to our conversation with Austin, Texas-based gardener Pam Pennick. Pam is a writer and a garden community grower. She's the author of Lawn Gone in 2013 and The Water-Saving Garden in 2016. As we come back, Pam is sharing more about good garden decision-making, but also about good gardening welcome through a story about the time she met Lady Bird Johnson at Johnson's beloved Wildflower Center. It's funny because I, I, you know, some people think that I'm anti-turf grass and I'm, and I'm not, I I don't have any right now. I, I think there's a lot more fun things that you can do than turf grass, but there's a place for it. Um, although I'm excited to see um, alternatives that are appropriate for the climate being developed, like the Wildflower Center developed uh, their Habiturf, and um, I believe they're the ones who still sell it. And that's a mix of, I think, five or seven native 
low growing grasses that can be walked on, it can be played on, it can be used for a play lawn, um, but it requires much less mowing, it requires, you know, very little water just to really get it going. Um, those kind of things are, are a great development for the Southwest. And I'm sure there are others yeah. for other parts of the country. I know sedges are very popular in lots exactly. of areas, although those aren't really so much for walking on. But um, the fact is, if you're not using your lawn, if you have a lawn, but you don't ever use it, and that's how most front yards are, what what are we doing yeah. with that? Like, why are we pouring what water are, on that and then making it grow and then having to go out there and mow it and then throwing chemicals all that all the time? It's It's crazy. It is crazy. But I agree with you that there is... Um, it's not an either or situation. It's a, what are better alternatives and how do we manage them and why and when do we choose to use them? Exactly. When do you really need it? I'm not sure how I'm connecting this, but there's something here about judgment and binary thinking and, um, and how and what we include in our gardening lives. And so I really, really, really want you to share the anecdote uh, of when you met Lady Bird Johnson. The Wildfire Center was, I, I always say, it's kind of where my kids grew up. I had a membership. It was where I would take them, you know, once or twice or three times a month. And we would just explore the gardens. There was no children's garden back then. There is now. But it was just a great place to get outside. It was beautiful. I got to learn about plants and design there. And my kids got to explore in nature. It was just a win-win. And I was out there with a friend one time. And I think my daughter was like six weeks old. And I had her in a, a little sling. And um, we were standing near the new area of the Wildfire Center at that time, which was the, they call it the Hill Country Stream. And it was a brand new stream, all beautifully designed with new plants around it, some palmettos and stuff. And my friend and I were just chatting away, not paying attention to what our, our older kids were doing. Our boys were about four and three at that time. And um, we turn around and Lady Bird Johnson is rolling up to us in her wheelchair with her daughter behind her and the director of the Wildflower Center. And we instantly recognized them, of course, and were starstruck and quickly looked over at our boys and they were chunking rocks into that new stream. They were picking up rocks off the side of the stream and just chunking. They were having the best time of their lives. <laughs> and all I could think of was that we were, we were tearing up Lady Bird's new stream, you know, and I, and we'd let them do it. You know, we just didn't even notice. We were so busy just enjoying ourselves, but she was utterly gracious and she didn't say anything about the rock chunking. And she just asked how old our kids were and asked if we were enjoying the place. And, um, and she was lovely. And after we got over our starstruckness and she was, um, she was leaving with her, with her, with her daughter, we were like, we love your garden. You know, it was just, it was pitiful. It was just, it was, we were just so starstruck because we had been enjoying her garden. And that's how people here in Austin think about it. It's Lady Bird's garden. Like she made that thing happen and did so much to give voice to the native plant movement across the country. Yeah, it's a real treasure for Austin and for people who visit. Well, and there's something about this story that epitomizes, I think, our greatest hopes for any garden and um, especially probably public gardens as these sanctuaries for the ability of not only us, but our children to run around and be a little free and engage with the space, not destructively, but engage with the space. And, you know, I read into that, that she recognized having, you know, long been a lover of the outdoors, that it's fun to throw rocks into water. And uh, <laughs> like she was all for those boys actually enjoying that garden and being part of it. 
Yeah, I think she I think she understood human nature pretty well, for sure. And and probably and kids, too. I mean, um, when they did build the family garden, which was something that her daughter was very involved with and it's named after her, that garden was designed to be a space where kids could explore and do whatever they wanted and not, you know, like there's, you can fill up buckets of water and dump them into a stream and lie on your stomach on the edge of that stream and feel around it. And I mean, it's not like a jungle gym, you right. know, like they would have been in, in our childhood days. Right. It, it's, right. it's, it's really a place for kids to feel like they're in a, it's not a wild space, but it has elements of, of wilderness. Wild. And it, it, yeah. it amazed me. Yeah. When, when my kids were little, I would go on field trips uh, as you know, one of the chaperones. And I remember one time we were hiking through the woods in some pretty rugged park in Austin. And the kids were, it was clear they had never gone hiking. Like a lot of the kids were like, they were out of their element. They didn't understand really what hiking was about. They didn't, they just hadn't, they hadn't done that before. And it really struck me. They had never been let loose to run around in the woods before or in a field. And it just seems so sad. You know, I just think we need more of that. And our, and I, I do think our gardens can be more like that if we get rid of the traditional way of doing gardening with the whole, you know, it's a big lawn. Everybody thinks, oh, you need a lawn if you have kids. That is just definitely not true. I mean, most kids do not want to run around in a lawn. They're too busy with their, their soccer and stuff, which is done on fields, municipal fields. They don't need the big soccer lawn in the backyard, but they will go out there and explore if you have like maybe some old tree stumps just sitting in chunks, you know, in a, in a little grassy area or gravelly area, it, the more wild you can make it, the more interesting the more it is. appealing it is. Yeah, There's yeah. something to go see. Yeah. yeah. And it attracts creatures too, that are interesting to watch. Take us to your decision to not only be a designer and a gardener and a writer and a community organizer around the the bloggers, but to also start a series of public talks that you have entitled Garden Spark, Garden Design Talks for Thinking Gardeners, which is, I already said, I, I love this title. This is a lot of work. Um, no one's ever going to get rich doing this, but <laughs> it is also such an incredibly rich and valuable resource in any community. Talk about the the catalyst for you in taking something like this on in a city like Austin and in uh, continuing it and what your, you know, the catalyst for it, the evolution of it, and then your hopes for it. That's a three-part question. And I'll remind you of the parts as we go along, Pam. Okay. I don't know, you know, when you laid it all out like that, all the things that I've done, I don't know if any of them have been actual decisions. They just kind of <laughs> happened. <laughs> I mean, um, part of the catalyst of it goes back to why I started blogging Austin and Texas, and I'm going to just keep expanding the Southwest, the middle part of the country. I often have felt I've always have felt that those areas are overlooked in the gardening media that I was consuming when I was learning to garden. I was reading all kinds of books. I was picking up gardening magazines. This was pre-blogging. I was just looking for information wherever I could get it. And it was always, always about the coasts. It was about the Northeast. It was not even down to the Southeast. It was about the Northeast. It was about the Pacific Northwest. It was about California. 
it's still that way. Um, and that was frustrating to me. I mean, it's, it's, it's also like, you know, America as a whole, as a gardening culture has often, often started out and still looks often toward England for its example, which is hugely inappropriate for the vast part of our country, um, just in terms of climate. But even in terms of just how a garden should look, I just think there's a, you know, we can be so much more creative than that. And I think the U.S. has gotten its own look uh, for those coastal areas, but the middle section of the country has been ignored. And I really felt that lack when I was trying to learn how to garden. And then blogs rose up and suddenly I could read about these two experienced gardeners inspiring gardeners and what they were doing right here in Austin. And it was such just the learning curve was just, just, it was just so great to be able to see that kind of information. And then of course to have the resource of the wildflower center right here. And I I think social media still provides that, you know, blogging has had its heyday and now there are still blogs out there, but it's not the dominant thing anymore, but other social media still fills that role for Mm -hmm. these overlooked parts of the country because anywhere you live now you can find someone who is sharing pictures of their garden on instagram or um probably tiktok um so so that's part of it so i was looking for inspiration here and so i started to become an organizer just with the blog with the rise of blogging because i wanted to meet these other gardeners in person and so what began as an austin gathering of bloggers and there were quite a lot of us at one time there were like 20 people who were garden blogging here in Austin so we we started getting together and then I thought why don't we you know why don't we meet up with bloggers around the country because we were all communicating with these bloggers all around the country and that led to the organization called the fling um, which you and I have talked about before and we still meet every year um, it's not just bloggers anymore but other people on social media who who share about gardening um, and I think the Garden Spark was a similar impulse. It was a feeling of, okay, I'm looking around the country and I'm seeing these really amazing um, speakers who are appearing at garden shows in, you know, in Portland or Seattle or Philadelphia or wherever these amazing garden shows are. And why don't we get them in Austin? Why don't they come to Texas? You know, why are we not getting those kind of speakers here, these people that I want to hear from? And um so I guess I just thought, why can we not have this here, you know, and let's, let's do that. And we'll, I'll look at the model of um, house concerts to see mm-hmm. if I can make that happen, which is for people who don't know about house, you know, it's just bringing a band to your house and selling tickets at the door um, or taking donations to basically pay that band um, to appear. And, um, and then, you know, you just get around the whole, the whole needing another organization to do that for you. And it worked. And there are a lot of people here that were hungry for that same information. And of course, my living room could only hold about like 30 people if I squeezed all the furniture just the right way. And um, but I I started um, inviting people to come speak um, like you from other parts of the country. And also I reached out to local designers who aren't speakers. They don't consider themselves speakers. For a lot of them, it's their very first talk when Mm -hmm. they speak at Garden Spark. But they were willing to be part of the conversation was how I pitched it to them was come, come be part of the conversation, share your knowledge with other gardeners here, 
Um, a lot of people who come to the talks are home gardeners, but there's also a lot of local designers who come. So it's a mix of people. Everybody is interested in design who comes because that's how I, I pitch it as design talks. They're not all exactly about design, but for the most part, they are. Um, and uh, it's been a model that's really that's really worked great. Um, I've been amazed by the speakers that we've gotten. The feedback has been great. People, I've got a, an email list now of about 600 people. So I, I do the ticketing through the email list. They sell out very quickly. You know, we can hold about 40 to 50 people at the nursery where I host it now, Barton Springs Nursery, where you spoke. This is Cultivating Place. Pam Pennick is the gardener behind the well-known garden blog, Digging. Based in Austin, Texas, Pam is an avid gardener and esteemed garden writer. With a big heart for smart gardening and her home state of Texas, in 2017, she determined to start an annual garden design speaker series in Austin to bring some of the best voices in gardening and design to her home garden community. Stay with us, we'll be right back with more from Pam. It's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week. Another thread in this conversation with Pam worth noting, I think, is the desire Pam's work taps into, from the garden blogger's fling to her Garden Spark series, this desire for us as gardeners to gather, to be together, and to share and learn and commune. It's both practical and existential. It is part of what drove the history of seed sharing and seed keeping, the history of granges, of garden and plant societies, and now of online garden forums. And while the online offerings are wonderful and many, never forget the great gift of your in-person garden people. Love them, thank them, appreciate them, and most importantly, get together with them and invite others to join you. I also really like Pam's description of the Garden Spark Talks being for thinking gardeners. And I thank you all for being part of this thinking, caring, purposeful, and welcoming gardening community. We grow the world. We're back now to our conversation with Austin, Texas-based gardener Pam Pennick. Pam is a writer and garden community grower. In 2017, she started a garden design speaker series called Garden Spark right there in Austin to bring some of the best voices in gardening and design to her home garden community. As we come back, Pam shares more about the importance and hunger in gardeners to learn and gather, and share, and grow together, online and in person. If you're like me, you spent the COVID years doing innumerable Zoom meetings. And it was great in so many ways, because suddenly, for the first time, garden groups who were organizing really interesting talks up in the Pacific Northwest or wherever, uh, botanical gardens across the country, were offering those 
to people anywhere. Before, it was in person, and you had to be there to get those garden talks, and then suddenly you could get them online. And so I attended many, many of those Zoom talks and got a lot out of them. But that said, so even though it's great to get that, it is it is still not compared to an in-person talk. You don't have the energy of it. You don't get to go say hi to the speaker afterwards. There's something about um, sitting in a room or in, in the case of Garden Spark Outdoors under this big live oak with the lights hanging in the trees. Um, something about that experience of being there in person, surrounded by all these people who are there to hear this, um, that does, it creates this feeling of community. There's a feeling of energy that you cannot get from online. And so it is funny to think about the value we've gotten from, you know, for me, it started off with blogging and the whole online community, which I still get a ton of value out of, but then to bring it back in a local way with in-person talks um, has added this extra part that to me is invaluable. So yeah, it, it is funny how we've kind of come back around to that. And with Garden Spark, you don't have to be a member. You just have to be on the email list to find out about the talks. There's no dues to pay. There's no, you know, you can just come to whichever talks sound interesting. Sometimes I think about trying to offer it nationally by, you know, videotaping it and doing something like that. But that's kind of a skill set beyond, <laughs> you know me, I'm a technophobe. But there's huge value to be found in doing the the local thing, bringing it home to your community and finding out who's in your community. Because so many times we don't even know who's out there. If we don't have neighbors who garden, if we don't have family who gardens, how are you going to find those people? They're there. You've just got to, you got to figure out a way to meet in person. And that could be like three people, or it could be 30 people or 300 people. I don't think, I think it, like if I, if I were to encourage anybody out there hearing this, who thought, well, why can't I have that in my town? I I say you can. I mean, maybe it's going to look different if you're from a smaller town. Um, uh, but I still think there's value in that in-person meetup and bringing in people of diverse backgrounds. Yeah. And uh, all along the spectrum of gardening experience too, because that is how mm -hmm. we learn, right? Like we say, I'm trying this plant in my garden and I'm struggling or it's not happy. And someone else says, oh yeah, I had that same problem. Like what kind of clay soil are you on? Or, you know, which part yeah. of town are you in? Try this. And it, it is that um, both literal and figurative sharing of garden seeds and cuttings that helps grow us as gardeners and has it does yeah yeah it's part of doing as much in person as you can and then taking advantage of all the online resources i mean there's we really do live in kind of an amazing age for of, of information there's so much out there to take advantage of as far as the garden spark talks these days i mean i started off you know thinking it was going to be mostly about i wanted talks for um People I can, you know, like that I, like myself, I considered myself an experienced gardener. I didn't need basic how-to information. I wasn't looking for that. I wanted to find something different, something about a design, which I'm passionate about, uh, more creative, more in-depth information. As we now are entering our sixth season of Garden Spark, I find that I'm looking even more for people who can speak to our current moment of um, adapting to climate change. I mean, we've known, we've known about climate change for a long time now, but it's really being brought home, I think, to a lot of the country in ways that it wasn't even 10 years ago. I know I certainly feel that way here in Austin. And um, 
right now Austin's suffering through another terrible drought. Hasn't rained, not really rained it on the how long. It's been over 100 degrees for months. It's brutal out there. And every single gardener I speak to here in Austin is feeling that feeling of 2011's drought, that feeling of, is it worth it? Is it is it doable? You know, how can we garden in a place that's so harsh? And then, you know, how do we do it? And so more and more, and I find that the speakers who are coming, and I include you in this because you, you gave us such an inspirational talk when you came last spring. Um, everybody who comes to speak now has this on their mind, no matter where they come from. Like, how can we adapt as gardeners to these extremes that we're all experiencing, whether your area is experiencing drought or whether it's experiencing too much rain, um, whatever the extremes are, we're all feeling it. Um, and I think it can be disheartening to suddenly be faced with the realization that, okay, you're in California, maybe there's not going to be the irrigation that we used to have. How can we adapt to that? You know, what can we do? And bringing people together to talk about these things or even to dance around them, just like how can we garden as things are changing? There's so much power in that. I mean, we are all in this boat together and there's a lot of comfort to be found in that. You know, we're a pretty creative species and I think the sharing of ideas, um, the sharing of hope, like we're gonna we're gonna figure out a way to do this. There's a lot of value in that. And I think that's why the talks continue to be powerful. And I think that's why your podcast is powerful. And people need to have these connections. You don't want to be, I think so many gardeners are introverts or they, they can they can at least take periods of alone time in their gardens. I mean, it, you, if you had to be around people all the time, you'd probably never make a garden because, you know, that's what it requires. Um, but it, it doesn't mean you want to be stuck in your own little backyard all the time. You want to reach out and talk to other people and learn from them. And so anyway, that's what I'm trying to do with Garden Smart. So give us a rundown. You just announced your 2022-2023 season. Who who do you have coming up this year? I've got um, four speakers this year, two landscape architects coming from Fort Worth, um, Lori and Michael Kindler, and they're going to talk about reclaiming the front yard um, in that way that we just discussed, right? Like most people just, you know, the the front lawn is the default. And it's just mow and fertilize and mow and fertilize and edge and stuff. And they're going to talk about ways to reclaim that to make it part of your home or your outside experience. Um, so I'm really excited about that. And being from Fort Worth, they have many of the same experiences we do here in a little farther south in, in Austin. Um, in October, Teresa Spite is going to come speak from D.C., yeah, she's going to talk about her new book, Black Flora, which I'm very excited about. It's about black florists and flower farmers. And um, and then in November, I've got Jennifer Orr coming to speak. She is with Studio Balconies here in Austin. She's a landscape architect there. And she's going to talk about, um, she's got kind of a provocative title, it's less gardens, more ecosystems. So thinking bigger than just in terms of a garden, but how you can create ecosystems for wildlife and um, plant communities that give back more than just, you know, just the ornamental garden um, in our challenging conditions. And then my last speaker is going to be in February, and that's Mark Word of Word Car Design Studio, Design Group here in Austin. And he's going to use a baseball metaphor. Um, he's a big baseball fan. 
And he said he's going to use a fantasy baseball metaphor about how you'd put together the perfect team, only he's going to put together the perfect groups of plants. So, you know, I mean, there is no perfect group, right? It depends on your circumstances. He's going to talk about that. But yeah, he's going to use that whole model to to make a fun talk about planting. I love it. And uh, that sounds like a great uh, lineup and uh, a, a nice round kind of holistic view of gardens across the range of the talks. Okay, you, like me, like so many of us, are gardening in pretty rugged times and under pretty hot, dry often, even though it's humid there, uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. If you had to tell me five plants or genera of plants you would not live without in your garden right now, what are they? Well, agave is always at the top of the list. I don't know. There's just something very sexy about them. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know about agaves until I started reading that first blog that I found all those years ago when I was a baby gardener. And it was called Soul of the Garden. Tom Spencer wrote it. Um, he's a very big gardening personality in Austin. And um, he loved agaves. And so if I've influenced any of my readers to love agaves, then I will consider that a huge success. I don't know. There's just something very beautiful about them. They've got the symmetry. They're super tough. Um, I don't know. They're lovely. So I would I would always want to have agaves. Um, I love salvias. Um, we have a lot of different salvias we can grow here, even though it is very humid and humidity can do a number on a lot of dry loving plants mm-hmm. that you can probably grow out in California with your summer dry climate. We can't do those, but salvias are great. They're very adaptable. Um, I even, the, one of the salvias that I love is called, um, for Scythia sage, it's Salvia madrensis. And it has these moonlight yellow flowers that bloom in the fall and it grows in the shade. I mean, salvias are very adaptable. There's all kinds of salvias for your condition. So I love those. Um, I love Turk's cap. Um, that's a native plant here in, in uh, Texas that's just almost a weed. I mean, everybody knows Turk's cap here. I, when I was doing design work, some of my clients hated it, but I never could understand it because it just grows so well. It grows in the shade. It grows in the sun. It's drought tolerant. It attracts hummingbirds like crazy. It's got these cute little red flowers that hummingbirds love. Um, if you need the botanical name on that, it's Malvaviscus dramondii. Okay. And um, there's several different cultivars these days that you can experiment with so i've been collecting there's different there's even a white one and a pink one called pam's pink hmm. not named after me um <laughs> but it's got those great tubular yeah big tubular <laughs> flowers a little bit like some of yeah. the salvias yeah yeah and it's yeah, is that native similar. Mm-hmm. in texas yep they're native here yep okay they're wonderful i love those um yuccas i mean um I didn't used to be as big of a fan as yucca because agaves are just so much sexier, but yuccas are pretty, they're pretty cool. And mainly I've learned to love them more because we've had some really extreme cold events. Um, as you may know, that the, the crazy snow that Texas had um, two winters ago, and it killed off a bunch of our agaves here, killed off a ton of agaves, really was quite sad. But the yuccas, of course, sailed through it. So yuccas are maybe even tougher um, they just, they can survive the cold. They can survive the heat. They come, they, some of them have you know, these bright yellow leaves. We've got the yucca rostrata here, which is the big mm. tall one with the trunk and yeah. the like koosh ball head. Um, they're fabulous. So they add structure to the garden. They add evergreen color. I, I love them. And I guess number five would have to be Texas mountain laurel. It's like, I think of it as the iconic Austin plant. When, when my husband got a job here and we were looking for a place to live before we moved out, it was early spring and the Texas mountain laurels were blooming 
And that was part of the reason I fell in love with Austin. So if your readers or your listeners don't know what they are, there's this beautiful, shapely, evergreen tree. And then in the spring, early spring, these wisteria-like purple blossoms appear all over the tree and they smell like grape Kool-Aid. And it's just, it's just a beautiful tree. And it really says Austin to me. So I love it. As we come to the end here, you know, and you think back on six years of of hosting these, of um, many more years than that, helping to organize the fling that people uh, around the the country and world come together for to visit gardens in different locations. You're writing your own garden design. What do you think your greatest joy is in this aspect of your identity and life's work? It's just, it's meeting people. Um, There's just so much to learn, so much to be inspired by in talking to people and learning what their backgrounds are, what is powerful to them about gardening. Um, That I found that when I was doing the design work, like meeting people at their home, seeing what their challenges were, hearing what their hopes were for their garden. taught me so much about gardening for myself and also about why we're doing it. And that just continues with meeting people every year in a different city for the fling and seeing, oh, okay, well, here's how people are gardening in Madison, Wisconsin. And here's how people are gardening in Denver. It just, you, you learn a lot about yourself and your own practices by seeing what people are doing in other places um i never really thought so much of my work would be about organizing people but but it turned out to be that way and i really get a lot out of it even though i'm kind of you know like i said a total introvert um there's still i don't know there's a lot of there is a lot of the feeling of community that you create by getting together with other people and meeting people regularly it keeps you engaged it keeps you interested it makes it all seem more fun or doable or survivable, just depending on your mood um, for, for, for what your own region is going through. Um, there's a lot more to it than just putting a few plants together and saying, oh, that looks pretty. You know, it's a whole culture and it's about um, making the world a better place and a place that you feel like you're doing your best in and adapting to whatever comes next and knowing that you'll get through it together. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a great treat to catch up with you. It's been great to catch up with you too. Thanks for having me. Pam Pennick is the gardener behind the well-known garden blog, Digging. Based in Austin, Texas, Pam is an avid gardener. She is also a writer and the author of two books, Lawn Gone, published in 2013, and The Water-Saving Garden, published in 2016. Pam is also a dedicated garden community grower. She is an organizer behind the Garden Bloggers Fling, an annual event bringing together garden communicators in a garden area of interest in the U.S. every year. And she is the 
organizer and host of the Garden Design Speaker Series called Garden Spark, which facilitates bringing some of the best voices in gardening to the Austin area for the benefit and expansion of the gardeners and gardening there. Speaking of plants and place in Texas, the iconic and storied Texas bluebonnet is the state flower. Botanically, bluebonnets are four different species of lupins, including Lupinus texensis, which cover grasslands and road verges across the state, especially hill country, in a sea of springtime blue. The genus Lupinus characteristically have light to deeply green palmately compound leaves, and they're recognizable by their bold, upright flowering stems, which feature clusters of up to 50 or more individual pea family flowers. On the fragrant flower clusters of Texas bluebonnets, the top of the cluster is bright white. The joy of lupins in our ecosystems and gardens extends far beyond Texas. With more than 250 species, the genus is found in Central and South America and the Mediterranean, but many native lupins are renowned across North America. From Texas bluebonnets to Lupinus oregonus, endemic in Oregon and the larval host of the endangered Fender's blue butterfly. Lupinus perennis, also known as sundial or prairie lupin, is native across much of the north and southeast. Lupinus argentius is found in higher elevations across grasslands and mountain ranges of the west, from the Rockies to the Sierra. California is home to more than 130 species and varieties of lupin. Lupin, which comes in colors ranging from blue, blue and white, purple, pink, mauve, yellow, and pure white, can be low-growing, almost ground covers, and diminutive spring annuals. They can be mid-sized to large herbaceous perennials, as well as expansive woody shrubs or bush lupins, such as the western native Lupinus albifrons, silver leaf bush lupin, a really good dry garden plant. Being a legume, lupins fix nitrogen in the soil, but they're also high in alkaloids, and seeds and foliage can be toxic. Early in the 19th and 20th centuries, English plants people hybridized North American native lupins for bigger, more colorful flowers, and these hybrids, like the Russell lupins and their descendants, are great garden choices but so are many of our native North American lupin species. So look to your regional native plant society or your independent or native plant nurseries for the best lupin plants or seeds for your area. I love that lupin are beautiful bloomers, sometimes even fragrant and a pretty good cut flower. But you want to know what I love best about them? Almost all of them have co-evolved with bumblebees, who have the heft and determination to open the semi-closed pea flowers in search of nectar and pollen. Witnessing fuzzy black and yellow bombus at work, vibrant orange pollen-filled corbicula, humming against the sky blue or saturated purple blooms, this is a moving and artistic study in life, in color, in diversity, and in symbiotic mutualism. 
a good garden life goal for all of us. For more information on Texas bluebonnets, on the lupin genus, and for my full interview with Pam Pennick, including her top five plants she wouldn't garden without in Austin, as well as for more information and many photos from Pam Pennick's garden life, at home and in community, head on over to cultivatingplace.com and check out this week's show notes under the podcast tab. That's all at cultivatingplace.com, where you can also subscribe to the program so you never miss an episode. Listen in next week when we linger a little longer in late summer Texas, this time in conversation with Amy Hovis and William Glenn of Barton Springs Nursery, where they believe that today plants the future, and they welcome and encourage us all in raising our plant babies and their garden homes right. Join us next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you. Thank you for all of your growing support. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with tech and web support by Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Thank you.